You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris, and today I'm really excited to have Ian Riccio, who's the curator of reptiles and amphibians from the L.A. Zoo. Hey, Ian. Hey, how you doing? Doing awesome, doing awesome. And, you know, thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. We have some amazing stories to talk about some of the work that not only you're involved with, but also the Los Angeles Zoo, which is now quickly becoming my new hometown zoo. <laughs> you know, love it. <laughs> love your facility. Lo- love your, oh, it's, it's an amazing place to go and, and you're doing such amazing work. So one of the first things we always like to ask is just, you know, kind of give us a background on you, you know, where you grew up and obviously you're living in Southern California, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've grew up in Southern California. This is, uh, I popped around the, the, the city here and there, but always seem to come back to the Burbank area, LA area. Um, you know, it's been, been a, been an interesting uh, ride as to, you know, how I got to become a, a zoo man. Uh, started, uh, as a kid going out to the desert and had two great parents that emphasized wildlife and wild places and art and nature in general and, and just really kind of jump started my interest in this whole thing. From a fellow Southern Californian, you know, so you said going out to the desert, is that kind of where your interest in conservation began? Well, you know, Southern California, the, 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 is the desert essentially. So we, we live in a desert. Um, you know, we're close to the four main deserts of the Southwestern U.S. And, and if, if, you know, you live in California, you've, you've experienced desert animals and really, you know, this, my father was a huge, huge reptile guy, you know, a serious amateur herpetologist. And, and so we just traveled, our family vacations were getting in his old mail Jeep and driving down to Baja, you know, to go look for some snake that he, that he had read about in a journal or, <laughs> awesome. or going to Borrego Bar- Desert down in San Diego and looking for reptiles. So yeah, that's, you know, that's it. Right. And so did you go to college in California or did you major in anything special? Yeah, I did. I mean, I majored in uh, biology to start, and then I started, I kind of started gravitating towards the arts more, and I actually graduated with my degree in, in uh, two-dimensional design. So at this point, I can draw a snake really well. That's <laughs> awesome, though. <laughs> That's a good yeah. skill. <laughs> yeah. Did you go to graduate school after that, or...? I did not. Um, I actually just kind of dropped out of the biology part of it. And I, I got a great opportunity as a young man in my early twenties to start working as a keeper at LA zoo. And I just made working my priority really. Ah, oh, that's okay. Okay. This is, this is cool. This is cool. Cause we, we have a lot of, a lot of our fans are young. They reach out to us. How do I get involved in conservation? They're always wondering, like, do I have to major in biology? Do I have to go get a master's degree? Do I have to go get a PhD? And so you're kind of saying, I, I did the arts, but then you did get a, a job at the LA Zoo. And so you've just kind of worked your way up, right, to curator? I mean, that's a big job. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the business has certainly changed, but it's funny when you meet people in the in the you know wildlife business, we come from so many different backgrounds. And I think nowadays, you really do need to have, you know, an advanced degree or at least a bachelor's to get your foot in the door. It's really important. But, you know, I always say to you, there's certain practical skills that 
you can't learn in college. You know, they, they, there's not a college I know of that teaches you how to put a green mamba in a restraint tube and pull its eye caps off. Right. So there's, yeah. there's a lot of value in getting that experience through volunteering. Something I, I, I think is super important for kids these days to get out and volunteer and, and, you know, and, and put the work in and see what it's like and, and meet people, you know, have people meet you and, and uh, yeah, so that's, that's some of my best advice to give folks these days, but certainly, you know, education is, is ultra important, of course. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, to start out in the zoo world, that's kind of what we have seen and recommend is, you know, you can either go to Moore Park College or Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo if you want to be a zookeeper mm-hmm. or major in biology or something like that. But, you know, there's, there's a huge interest in a lot of people that want to get involved. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah, so I mean, you- those colleges are great facilities. I mean, we have a number of keepers here that came through those two facilities. Yeah, they're really good. They're really good. So you said you, you started off as a keeper at the LA Zoo. Can you kind of talk about your career there, you know, leading up to yeah. now the curator? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I started off, you know, volunteering uh, in the late 80s, and I just was waiting out an opportunity where there was a, a keeper position, you know, I was hoping for one in the reptile department and something popped up that was kind of a, you know, you worked all over the zoo part time, got your foot in the door, kind of a position where I was working birds, mammals. I worked rhinos for several years. Um, but of course my love was herpetology. So, you know, uh, the management at the time was like, all right, we got to, we got to get this kid in the reptile department full time. And eventually just worked my way up into a full time position, um, you know, and, and then up the ladder from there. But, um, you know, prior to working the zoo, I was working all kinds of different jobs, which I think is, is, is really important because, you know, work ethic is huge, right? So I was working as a plumber, a plumber's apprentice when I was 18, 19 years old, you know, crawling under houses and busting my butt all day. And then I got a job doing some freelance model making work for the studios. And I built some models for Edward Scissorhands back when that was being developed. And that was a really great way to, to see how to work, you know, 14 hour days and, uh, so, so it kind of built up that work ethic. So when I did get to the zoo and I was doing something I really loved, man, it wasn't even like work, you know? No, it never is. When you, when you're following your passion, it's like, you don't have enough hours in the day to do what you yeah. love. It's just, yeah, it's, it's crazy. So now you're curator. Can mm-hmm. you kind of tell just for, for our listeners that, that have never worked at a zoo or don't really understand what a curator does? Yeah. So, so the curator position, like you would, you know, most people hear about curators of art collections, right? So we're managers of a collection. Um, in my case, I'm managing a collection of live animals, right? So we, we as curators decide what animals will be uh, prioritized for say conservation programs or breeding uh, priorities for the zoo, how to exhibit certain species, how to build their habitats so that they're, they present themselves nicely to the public and also, uh, you know, meet all the requirements for whatever animal you're trying to keep alive. Um, it's those kinds of things. It's, you know, at the curator level, quite honestly, you're, you're, you're working with a lot more paper than you are hands on with animals. Um, being the animal keeper is really the fun part, you know, and I did that for many years, but, um, curating is, is fantastic. You know, getting to manage a collection of, of species that you're passionate about is, is just, just really amazing. Yeah. And we're going to, you know, we're going to definitely talk more about, you know, the current status of reptiles and amphibians and, and some mm-hmm. of the critically endangered ones you're working with. But, you know, what's a, a day in the life at the zoo for you as a curator? Yeah, it's different every day, quite honestly. You know, you come into work and, you know, I try to get out and see 
the collection and my people every day. Doesn't always happen, but get out, walk through the exhibits, uh, talk to talk to the folks on the ground that are working hands on with the animals. Um, that's that's kind of my priority. Of course, we have a lot of meetings, but correspondence is important. Um, talking to other other zoos and finding out what they're doing. You know, we move a lot of animals in between facilities for as breeding recommendations and and you know and other other things. But uh, it's you know. Communication is probably the biggest part of my job. There's a lot of email, a lot of phone calls, a lot of attending conferences and things of that sort. Right. I mean, and that's perfect. That's like a, a perfect setup for this next question. And if this wasn't <laughs> planned, but <laughs> you, you talk about moving animals between facilities and, mm-hmm. you know, and this podcast and, and others, you know, we really have talked about the mission of zoos today. And, right. and this has been a mission. Yeah. You know, we did a, actually a really great podcast uh, last year on why zoos matter with Corbin Maxey and Angie and myself. And we, we kind of gave the history of zoos and hi- zoos. This isn't a new thing being interested in conservation. Right. I mean, if it wasn't for, I think the Bronx zoo and Smithsonian Institute, bison would be extinct. That's right. You know, they came together <laughs> over 120 years ago. Right. So zoos have always been involved in, in conservation in one way or the other, but today the mission is more critical than ever. So my next question is, being that you are an expert in reptiles and amphibians, how are they doing in the wild today? Yeah, it, it's a big question. Um, and there's not an easy answer for it. I mean, there's not, you know, there, there's certain species of reptiles that are kind of like coyotes, right? So we still see alligator lizards in our backyards all over Southern California. Um, they've adapted well to urban sprawl, but that's not the norm, right? So, and there's over 10,000 species of reptile and, and thousands of more species of amphibian. There is, there's massive decline in a lot of those groups of, of reptiles and amphibians, um, and a lot of the, these animals, because they're kind of the lesser known animals, you know, they're not the, the fancy, uh, you know, pandas and giraffes and lions and bears. Mm-hmm. There, it's really, we're, it's data deficient, we call it. We really don't know what's happening. Um, there's certainly drastic declines in many of the populations, especially in amphibians. You know, amphibians are kind of the canary in a coal mine, if you will. Um, they're, they're generally considered kind of sensitive animals. So, um, you know, we've, we've discovered some or we've described some species of amphibians. You know, I think of the, the golden toad was described, I think in the sixties and it was gone by the eighties, right? So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. there's a lot we don't know. Um, the turtle and tortoise situation right now across Asia is dire. Um, we're seeing animals that are, you know, boatloads and truckloads of endangered species being taken out of the wild. And of course that's dwindling, but you know, just recently there was, I think it was the Palawan uh, forest turtle that uh, there was a confiscation that happened in Asia. And, and there were more of those turtles found in the back of one truck than we thought still existed in the wild. Um, so yeah, it, it's in, so that's, you know, those, that's the bad stories, but um it's really hard to to say exactly how the whole group is doing, but, you know, I like to, you know, when you talk about these, these lesser known creatures like reptiles, amphibians, invertebrates, et cetera, they don't get a lot, a lot of attention, but they're kind of like the, like the foundation, right. Of, Mm -hmm. of, of, of biomes. And you don't really see a lot of what's going on with things that are living under the, under the dirt and in the cracks and crevices until all of a sudden the house collapses, right? 
You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's the fancy, uh, somebody kind of, uh, use the analogies like, okay, you know, you, you know, when the, when your fancy kitchen is failing, that's kind of like the panda, right? You know, if there's, cause they're, they're out there, they're big, they're, they're flashy and you know, when there's, there's a problem right, right. with those, but you don't hear about the freshwater mussels <laughs> that are disappearing right. the fil- filter system for, you know, freshwater rivers and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, we've, we've got a problem on our hands with, with reptiles, amphibians, and, and some of the invertebrates and fish. Yeah. No, I, I mean, it, it's so true. And you know, it's easy to talk about the megafauna and, people get enamored, you know, like the panda Mm -hmm. or an elephant and people like, Oh my goodness. And you know, we're going to sit here and and talk about the Southern mountain yellow legged frog here in a second. Who cares? Right. Oh, it's just a frog. You know, we have tons of frogs. Well, can you, I mean, you, you, you alluded to it and I don't know if we can expand on it or not, but the food web, I mean, how critical Mm -hmm. are reptiles and amphibians? You talked about the, the base, but you know, if we start removing so I, I guess I could propose a question like this. Mm-hmm. If we start removing these species from the environment, which we are, how do you foresee from, from your standpoint that biome surviving? Well, yeah, I mean, like you said, you're taking out the foundation of, of a particular biome. You know, you even take the insects out of it, and it's, it's just this kind of domino. I'll tell you, we, we did um, – and I haven't mentioned this to anybody yet, but I was just thinking about it. When we did our, our release, our first release in the San Jacinto Mountains, the LA bred frogs, and we walked through the canyon, I remember how many, the mosquitoes were just out of, I mean, it was unbelievable how many mosquitoes mm-hmm. and insects were. And that was in a canyon where the frog was extinct. And I thought to myself, gosh, you know, I wonder how much of an impact this frog being gone is, is, you know, attributed to the increase in the mosquito population. And we know how many diseases, say, mosquitoes carry. So that was something I thought mm-hmm. about. And then in, in going forward now, I've been in canyons where there's there are still some frogs existing, and I didn't experience that. So, you know, it's just an example. of, And, and this is all just, you know, my, my observation. There's no ba- mm-hmm. real science behind that. But, um, you know, from our own self-preservation standpoint, right, do we want to start to – we need to start thinking about some of these little creatures that we're not thinking about. You know, and that is the the theme I've been really hearing talking to people like yourself the last few months and something that we've started to talk about too. It's not just survival of an amphibian or specific reptile. Mm -hmm. It's all species, including Homo sapien. That's right. Because, you know, something's going to survive. Every mass extinction, except I think the third where almost everything didn't survive, but we did somehow. Mm -hmm. Life did somehow find a way. but. And now we're in the sixth, something's going to survive. But the question is, does Homo sapiens survive? We don't know because right. it's becoming a real, real critical tipping point. So it's interesting you talk about the frogs. Too. I mean, the, the canyon, because, you know, the insects and, and how nature always finds balance. And when it's out of whack, you know, you're going to see things like more mosquitoes. Mm-hmm. Anyways, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a, it's, it's a story that needs to be told. And, and, you know, again, that's why we're happy you're here. And it's tougher too with a frog like the mountain yellow leg frog because they're not a flashy, sexy creature by any means, right? Mm-mm. You know? No, no, and I, I did. That's I was going to jump into them next because, you know, I, when I did get to, to go behind the scenes there at the LA Zoo and and see your breeding facility, and your your keeper Marlowe was talking to me about the frogs and what you were doing mm-hmm. and the reintroductions you were about to do. I think this was in the fall back in mm-hmm. September, October, 
And I was just like, oh my goodness. Like, I didn't know. I didn't know about them, you know, because obviously I've been living away from California for a while, but sure. here's a species in my own backyard that's critically endangered, right? That's right. I mean, it's, it's one of the most endangered amphibians on the planet. It's right here in Southern California. Uh, it's an animal that existed in, you know, by the thousands throughout our mountain ranges here and, and on the San Jacinto, San Bernardino and San Gabriel mountains. And now we're looking at potentially fewer than 500 adult animals existing in all three mountain ranges. That's, mm-hmm. that's dire. Right. And can we just, I guess, kind of just talk about, the, uh, you know, their history and then the pressures leading up to them being critically mm-hmm. endangered or almost extinct. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of describe their situation as the perfect storm. Um, you know, mountain yellow lake frogs, as I mentioned, were, were ultra common throughout the mountain ranges. They're, they're found, their particular niche is a little different than what you think of when you think of an amphibian. You, most people think of amphibians, they think of, you know, kind of warm, hot, humid areas. But these guys are found in the mountains. And they did very well in the mountains. What the, one of the main pressures that's led to their decline has been an introduction of invasive trout species, uh, rainbow trout in particular. And, and they've done a number on them. The, uh, and then on top of that, we have major drought issues. Um, we have uh, chemicals that are still in the water systems that have kind of leached into these pristine mountain environments now that are impacting them. And then the chytrid fungus, which, you know, is kind of a cosmopolitan issue for amphibians, but um, that's also kind of played into the whole, um, you know, demise of the mountain yellow lake frog. Right. Cause usually we, you know, when we think of a species, it's, it, I mean, this obviously is human cause, but you know, it's like, Oh, urban development or, the destruction of an environment, but you're saying this is more introduction of trout. So I guess what's the history of us introducing trout into these, these streams and rivers? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, the trout were introduced to create fishing holes for people and, um, and trout did really well in our local mountains. He's introduced trout and there are native fish that, that do feed on mountain yellow lake frogs and their tadpoles, but you know, introducing the voracious rainbow trout was kind of, was a big problem for them. Um, and, you know, and, and, and it's a challenge, too, as part of this whole restoration of habitat and reintroduction of the frogs that we're working on. We've, you know, we've built trout dams, for instance, so that the frogs, you know, the, we, the fishermen can still have their fish downstream and the frogs can exist upstream in their alpine environment. But, you know, then you, it all it takes is one fisherman to catch a rainbow trout and hike it up the canyon and release it in his own personal fishing hole he's created. Right. Mm. And all of a sudden you've, you know, you've gone 10 steps backwards. So that's, that's an issue too. But yes, it's primarily been the rainbow trout. But I mean, when you look at any species now, I mean, regardless of chytrid fungus or what it might be, I mean, habitat destruction is the, is the biggest issue really. Right. Right. I mean, across the planet. Yeah. I mean, that's where we're seeing a massive decline, but like this specific species. So I, can you kind of talk about how they survive in this, this colder environment? Cause I think most of our listeners or we, what we think of is amphibians living in warm, moist environments, but right. here they are living in the, in the cold mountains where just, you know, last week we had snow. Yeah. There, I mean, so, that's, yeah. that's what makes them kind of really kind of unique in that they can survive under snowpack. Right. So, so these, all of these frogs right now, as we speak, are hunkered down in a mud bank or at the bottom of a stream bed with snow and ice on top of them. And this is all part of their natural history. And it's, and you know, it's, it's different. Um, like I said, it's not exactly what you think of when you think of amphibians, but, but they've adapted to it. 
Um, as part of that, you know, keeping them, this is something we had to think about when we decided we were going to try to breed and release frogs was that we had to recreate that here at the zoo, right? Which is, was not easy. And also the water that they live in is this pristine or it should be pristine snow melt water. So the water quality was a huge consideration, you know, and, and developing our husbandry tech and breeding techniques for the frog. But yeah, they've, they've evolved to live up, you know, they live up to 7,500 feet on these mountaintops, which is pretty, pretty amazing. That's incredible. I mean, okay. So jump into your breeding program. Cause I, I did get to go to the, the frog shack and it was cold in there. And I was like, Oh, this is kind of unique. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so if you can just kind of expand on that, like kind of your breeding program, what you're currently doing with them. Yeah. So, I mean, we jumped into this program about 10 years ago and the USGS really kind of jump started it and got, um, got together with San Diego zoos, uh, center for reproduction and endangered species, which it was at that time. And they started working with the population in the San Jacinto mountains. And at this point, the Rana Muscosa, the Southern mountain yellow lake frog had not been bred in captivity. And they were able to do that. Uh, we jumped on a few years after they started. Uh, we had actually been prior to that involved in some yellow lake frog conservation by holding animals that were in danger during, during fires. Um, so we had a little bit of background, at least keeping them alive in cap, in a captive situation. But moving forward, we, we jumped on the breeding program and, uh, started breeding San Jacinto, uh, animals from, the, from that particular mountain range with San Diego. And together we did very well. I mean, we, both of our facilities produced hundreds of tadpoles for release and frogs as well. And as it's kind of evolved, we, the Los Angeles Zoo now is kind of, um, kind of transition towards working with the San Gabriel population. So from, you know, a geographic standpoint, it made more sense because the San Gabriel mountains are right outside our back door here. And it, and that particular population is actually the most critically endangered of all the three mountain ranges. So really, you know, and we're, and we're learning, we use other amphibians as models when we, when we take on, you know, an animal that has very little, um, you know, history and keeping, keeping them alive, even in captivity. So we, so getting out in the field, taking a look at the animals in the wild, their, their natural habitat is something that's, that we use to kind of translate to how we're going to, how we've kept them here. And that gets into a whole bunch of specific, interesting, tricky things we've done to, to make them reproduce here. Right. Can you expand on that a little bit? Cause I just, I just found it fascinating. It's just the stuff you had to learn mm -hmm you know, about their cold environment, the water quality, things like that. So, you know, what, what, I guess, what have you learned about these frogs going through this? That, and let me just preface that real quick, that can benefit other species too. That's the thing I, I, that's the thing I really want listeners to, to understand is all of these efforts that you're, you're pouring into this one species will benefit many mm -hmm. others, right? So, sorry, it's a long question, but. Yeah. I'll, and I'll try to address all of it. I mean, you know, we use, when you're working with a species that, like I said, there's very little, um, data on how to, how to keep alive or even reproduce. You look at model species, you know, species of, of similar, um, habitats or of similar taxa. But, you know, in this case, um, we also had a great background at Los Angeles Zoo in keeping montane pit vipers and breeding them. And we use a lot of that mm -hmm. um, husbandry technique and it translated over to, to the mountain yellow lake frog breeding um, strategies that we implemented. So 
what we have done is we've tried to to recreate that 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 seasonal change in temperature and also the um, the photo period, which is very important. Along with, you know, we know this about amphibians in general, that you the water quality is paramount, right? So we know that we had to set up certain type of filtration and UV sterilization and a certain type of water flow for this frog that we, we saw in the wild, you know. So we have these, these strong rushing streams, right? So we didn't want to have a stagnant pool of water for them. So we created these, these kind of stream bed situations in our, uh, for our husbandry. But again, going back to the, to the, um, you know, the cooling and the, and the seasonal changes in temperature, we use our vipers kind of as a model. So we have certain vipers, for instance, we work with an Armenian viper here that encounters similar um, changes in, in temperature where they come from at the tops of mountains. And we've been breeding them and we actually move them into a refrigerator at one point in their hibernation. So <laughs> to get them just cold enough, you know, and it's worked really well. Right. So with the frogs, you know, since they're going to be living in water, for the whole season, we, we put some really high powered chillers. We have air conditioners. I mean, when you walk into this yellow lake frog room, you know, you, it's not like you walked into any other reptile house you've ever been or a, any other amphibian house you've ever no, been. No. <laughs> you know, you've been there. <laughs> no. Yeah. 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 It's, it's freezing cold. And so I, I guess, you know, some of the stuff you've learned, have you been able to apply? I know you share this information. I mean, obviously right. at, at conferences and stuff like that. But has this benefited other species? I mean, you talked about the viper. So the viper experience benefited this frog. So, you know, can we anticipate this frog, what you're learning, benefiting other amphibians? Yeah, I mean, I, I think at this point, the the, the program and the, and the kind of the strategies that we've developed here, I don't know if that they've translated directly to any other species, but we have looked at, you know, switching it around a little bit on the flip side, look at hellbenders, you know, that, that zoos are doing great work with in the Southeast and, you know, some of that technology that they've used has helped us also develop some of our, you know, some of our husbandry techniques here. So, but going forward, yeah, I mean, this is all great information. And of course, you know, there's, there's no trade secrets here. We, we share, you know, that's what it's all about. Everybody's in the same game here. No, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. And I'm just thinking of like, you know, I don't know, those two, what, two, 300 species of, of poison dart frogs right. and, you know, and some of those are in, in kind of alpine conditions, mm-hmm. right? And in South America or just, you know, frogs around the world. Sure. So the information you're learning here, you know, turn around and apply it to another critically endangered species yeah. would be phenomenal. Yeah. And that's absolutely, and, and, it, and it will yeah. help, I'm sure, down the road. These are, you know, they're not completely unique. There's other amphibians that live up in high, you know, alpine situations, but, um, they are, they're very different. You know, they're not, they're far from typical of, of, of a frog. That's for sure. So when you decide you're going to reintroduce them, can you kind of talk about that, that decision process, process, you know, where they go and how you reintroduce them to the environment? Right, right. So, you know, this is where I want to make sure I mention all of our great partners in this, right? So we have the USGS, uh, California Fish and Wildlife, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service are all part of this, this, this fantastic project. And, and recently we have Henry Dorley Zoo in Omaha that has jumped on. Um, and we're still, we're getting other partners that are jumping on. So to answer your question, we, we meet and we discuss and, and make those decisions as a group. Our role here at the, at the Los Angeles Zoo is really, it's quite simple. We are breeding frogs for release into the wild and we're really good at 
at breeding and keeping amphibians and reptiles alive here. But those decisions mm-hmm. on exactly where to release them are, are really uh, with the USGS. Again, as a group, we discuss it and look at, you know, different, um, you know, we have to evaluate particular canyons to see with these drought situations we have, for instance, um, you know, you get water that, pools that we know are historical size for yellow leg frogs, or there might even be one or two frogs still living in these canyons and these pools through the drought recede to, you know, a puddle. And you're like, wow, you know, do we really want to release frogs or tadpoles here? And then you get these massive rain events like we had last year. And then all of a sudden it's a raging torrent and you have mudslides and slump happening. So those evaluate, that's just one example of the kind of evaluations that we have to do before we make a decision on where to release them. And that, a lot of that field work is done by um, the USGS and those, those biologists really do great hard work hiking into those canyons, man. I'll tell you. Right. And do they, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they're like evaluating the water quality and ensuring there's no rainbow trout, right? right? Yeah. And the rainbow trout's a big, you know, the removal of the rainbow trout is also a big part of it. And, and California Fish and Wildlife has been great in, in helping, uh, you know, in the removal process. And we, we send staff out, zoo staff out to help with that, help with building, uh, fish dams, for instance, that I think I mentioned before, um, getting the rainbow trout out, uh, and then, you know, doing several, uh, checkups on that because gosh, the last thing you want to do is, is take all that work and, and release a thousand tadpoles into a canyon and have the trout eat them up, right? Right. <laughs> it's like feeding time. So, <laughs> so I guess you, so you say you release them as tadpoles and not as adults. So we've done a little bit of both. Uh, you know, the survivability of frogs is obviously going to be much, much higher, but also the resources it takes to grow 10,000 tadpoles, for instance, into 10,000 frogs is just not, it's mm-hmm. just not realistic. So we've, we've done a little bit of both. Um, we do have, you know, when we, when San Diego and LA were working on the same mountain range there for a while, the San Jacinto population, we had released a number of tadpoles in a canyon where they, where the Yellow Lake Frog, the historic canyon that they had lived in and that they were now extinct. And we released a number of tadpoles there. And those tadpoles from the last I heard are actually breeding pairs of frogs now. So we know it works. Oh, we know tadpole releases work. Right, right, right. And so their what their current status, you said there's about 500 adults in the wild right now? Yeah, and that's just a guess. You know, I mean, I've heard numbers that of fewer than 300. It's it's hard to say. And, I, and I'll tell you, it's funny. Um, some of my staff went out to to release tadpoles, a couple of my, my, my senior keeper and, and, and one of our other keepers of the frogs went out last year to release tadpoles in the canyon. And they actually saw a live mountain yellow lake frog in one of the canyons, which was fantastic. Yeah. I have, I still have, I still have not seen a Southern mountain yellow lake frog in the wild myself. <laughs> it's on your bucket list, right? Yeah. I will see it's one. On my I bucket. Will. <laughs> yeah. I've seen thousands of tadpoles and, and hundreds of adults in, in, you know, our breeding <laughs> program, but never one in the wild. So yeah, it's pretty funny. Now, do you, do you have a count on how many adults you have under human care right now? Uh, we have a, have about 35 here at the zoo that are part, uh, of the breeding program. I'm not sure how many, um, San Diego is holding now. And, and as I mentioned before, Omaha's Henry Dorley Zoo has jumped on the program just recently and they've got some animals that they're breeding as well. And we've got a number of other zoos that we're, we're, we're prepping to get on this, on this uh, program as well. But out of our 30-ish frogs, we manage them as, as two separate, uh, canyon populations. Uh, so we're breeding just those, you know, those separate canyons, and then we manage their offspring separately. And then those offspring, the tadpoles, are being released in 
in the different tributaries, you know, that match up with those canyons that they came from. Right. This question just came into my head. So with amphibians, how do you ensure uh, genetic diversity? You know, it's something we can do, <laughs> you know, in mammals, we go and do some genetic testing or we have a, a stud book on them or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, of in breeding, unlike breeding unrelated pairs. How do you do that in frogs? Well, you can't keep stud books with frogs and there are, there are ways <laughs> of identifying <laughs> individual frogs um, and even individual tadpoles The the problem and you, you know, you really touched on, on probably what it going forward, what is going to be a, a bigger issue for us to deal with is that the, these are genetic bottlenecks, right? We only have mm-hmm. a few hundred frogs to work with and, and those, most of those are still in the wild. So when we, for instance, our, our group of animals that we're working with at LA Zoo, they were collected, um, in two canyons, as I, as I mentioned, as tadpoles. And when they were collected to bring into this breeding situation, we tried to get a sample as best of a cross section of genetic diversity as possible by just trying to collect them from different sites up and down the river. But we don't know, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. they could literally be all from the same pair of frogs. Uh, so it's tough. And that's something that we're going to have to look at. We've, we've seen some, some issues with certain tadpoles that might indicate that there is, you know, some genetic issues going on. We've had tadpoles with crooked tails, for instance, um, that could be nutritional, that could be, you know, a million different things, but could that be related to genetics? Maybe. And that's going forward, something that we're going to have to have to look at more closely, including potentially taking frogs from separate canyons and then going ahead and, and breeding those together. Now they're the same, they're the same subspecies, or they're the same species of frog. It wouldn't be like we were crossbreeding, you know, some mm-hmm. a different species. They're the same species of frog, but they are isolated from each other. They're disjunct populations. And so that might be just enough genetic diversity to keep us going. But those are some of the big questions, you know, going forward that um, certainly some of the geneticists are, who are a lot smarter than I am will have to probably make that call. Yeah, yeah, that's why pay them them the big bucks, right? And, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, we get down to these critically low populations, whether it's an amphibian, a reptile, or a mammal, a bird. And it's, you know, when you have uniform genetics, it it, it doesn't bode well for survival. So that's why this is one of those things that we always have to keep in consideration is we want a genetically diverse population so they can resist disease and some other things, you know? And so it's like, so when you get down, like I just, right now the vaquita porpoise, it's, it's in the news. It's, oh, it's yeah. getting a lot right. of attention and now they're down to what a dozen. And oh, yeah, it's you know, dire. Yeah. It, it, it's now we've recovered populations. The good news is, you know, it, it's always want to tell people the good news. These populations can recover. It's just a challenge we have in wildlife conservation. So, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating to think about it with amphibians and reptiles because it's just something that doesn't usually pop on our radar. Yeah. They're not as complex organisms as, as vaquita, you know, or some of the, you know, some of the megafauna that we've talked about earlier. So in some cases, and, and I'll give an example, you know, we know that certain, certain groups of reptiles and amphibians, um, you know, mountain king snakes that we have here in Southern California, you can walk through the forest for miles and you'll come across a large rock pile, you know, the size of, of, of your house. And there exists a population of mountain king snakes. And genetically, they're all related. And there's just enough genetic flow from a male that happens to cruise from the from a rock pile that's, you know, a mile away and mix up that gene pool enough to keep them going. So 
we have a, maybe a little more luxury in that regard being, you know, kind of lower vertebrate type animals. But mm-hmm. again, there's still, there's still a lot we got to learn. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, you know, like we opened up the podcast talking about how critical these animals are to a biome and the environment. So it's definitely issues that we need to keep investigating and, and keep our eye to. Now, you know, looking at the, the mountain yellow-legged frog, what are some of the other projects you're in, you're involved with right now, like specifically any other endangered species? You know, our, our herpetology department is, is doing a lot of really fantastic work. I mean, everything from just funding and sending staff to different projects abroad. We've been, uh, we've been super involved in Komodo dragon species survival program. You know, it's a, a cooperative breeding program within AZA zoos. And I think Los Angeles has produced, um, more Komodos than just about any zoo in the mm-hmm. world. Uh, uh, you know, there's some, certainly some farms in Indonesia that breed Komodos like crazy, but, um, you know, at Los Angeles has, has, has done a ton with Komodo dragons. Um, we support a wonderful program in Indonesia, the Komodo survival program that has, uh, you know, local biologists doing, you know, identifying uh, critical habitat for preservation there and on the islands. And that's something we've been involved with as well. So, uh, Komodos have been really close to my heart. Uh, but we, you know, there's a, a whole bunch of great species survival plan. Um, reptiles and amphibians that we've been, been pretty successful with here. The Armenian viper is one, um, that we've, we've had a lot of success with. I mentioned it earlier, uh, some of our mm-hmm. cooling techniques, you know, we've been, been able to breed those uh, multiple years in a row. Right, right. It, so we did, we covered, I don't know, Komodo dragons months and months ago, but is there any change in their status right now? I, I remember we were saying they were going to possibly shut down, I think, Komodo Island to tourism for a while because people were, trying to take them home, you know, not a good idea, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, I think there, there's a whole lot involved in some of, some of the reasons that was being considered. Um, you know, Komodos, uh, it's not so much that they're being taken and, you know, brought into the pet trade, for instance. And, and there's some of that that happens, of course, but it's, it's more, you know, protecting their prey base, which are some of the large mammals, you know, the Sunda deer there, um, the poaching of the deer, of course, habitat destruction. You know, there's there's disjunct populations of Komodos on Flores Island where they just they can't connect with each other anymore because of, you know, uh, villages and cities being built. So um, so it's 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 again, it's habitat destruction and and and, uh, and poaching of the prey base. is kind of the big deal for Komodos. The population is stable in some areas, from what I understand. Right, right. Yeah, it's an interesting story about them and, and just they're so unique. I mean, just such a unique reptile. The, so you talk about the Armenian viper. I guess, why care? You know, it's like from your standpoint, and, and this goes into, I guess, the yellow legged frog too, but, you know, again, why care about the Armenian viper? What, what does it provide? Yeah, I know. That's a, that's a tough one. I mean, it's it's easier for me to care about it because I love all the all the yeah. <laughs> all the yeah. weird and, and and quote unquote scary creatures. I mean the, these all these lesser known animals. Ah, it's a wonderful animal. It's an important part of the of the ecosystem. Um, you know some of the work, and, I, and I'll plug some of my my colleagues at other zoos. Some of the work that's uh, St. Louis and, and Sedgwick County Zoo. There, uh, Jeff Etling, who's a who's a good friend, director at Sedgwick. You know, did his PhD work on 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 tracking Armenian vipers and again, assessing critical habitat for them. And, and the work that he did has led to preserving larger uh, areas of, uh, you know, larger expanding parks in Armenia. And that, you know, 
the domino effect of that is, okay, so you, so you've preserved the Armenian viper, but also everything else that's in there, including some of that, the, the megafauna like, uh, like leopards and, and mouflon and, and some of those other wonderful animals that live in those areas. So, um, you know, so there's one example. Uh, again, it's, it's, and it's hard, you know, it's hard with a yellow leg frog. I mean, like, as I mentioned, they're kind of a, a gray nondescript. They're, they're not that flashy poison frog that everybody sees, you know, on Discovery Channel mm-hmm. and whatnot. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not the sexiest of creatures, but they are important to the ecosystem. And, you know, shoot, they're Southern California's frog. Uh, they deserve, they deserve protection. Right, right. And it, it was interesting you talked about that because it's like we always talk about umbrella species, you know, save elephants and all these species under them. But if you can preserve or, you know, cordon off habitat for, say, the Armenian viper, that's like an umbrella species, but on the way up, I guess, for the big ones, right? And that's right. You know, and, and as I alluded to before, it's like, you know, preserving these animals, we're preserving ourselves. So you've got Armenian vipers, vipers and snakes in general control rodent populations, right? And we know what a disease vector, you know, rodents can be. Um, you know, the Black Plague, for instance, <laughs> I mean, we almost wiped out civilization with the Black Plague. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, mosquitoes, um, you know, mosquitoes transmit some of the most virulent and, and deadly diseases to human beings that we know about. And, and the animals that control mosquitoes are the ones that I love, right? Frogs. Yeah. No, it's so true. It's so true. It's so true. Yeah, so we think about it that. for our own preservation, you know? It's a- yeah. Yeah. So it said preserving these animals, we save ourselves. I, you know, Angie always brings up this quote. She talked to uh, Dr. Sonardo down in Java doing tigers and he said, save the tigers, save the world. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can see that from his perspective, but from your perspective, I get it. You know, Nobody likes mosquitoes or some of these diseases and nature has a balance. And we've all set that balance. So no, that's, that's great right. stuff. It, it's really great stuff. So some of the other stuff I want to talk about is kind of promote LA zoo a little bit and some of sure. the other stuff they're, they're doing. Can you talk about some of the other programs that LA zoo is involved with right now. Yeah. I mean, we've got a number of fantastic um, conservation programs. Of course, one that's we're probably most famous for is a California condor program, which, you know, we've also, there's a number of other institutions that have been, integral in the, in that whole program. But, um, I mean, we've really, you know, we, we've written some of the, some of the protocols on hand rearing condor chicks, for instance, and really we, we were on the ground floor of that whole conservation program. And we work very closely with the facility in Boise and also San Diego, of course, but, you know, had it not been for zoo conservation of condors, you know, those animals would be gone. Uh, we mm-hmm. would just be reading about them like the dodo in textbooks. So that's one no, I always yeah. like to talk about, you know, yeah. No, that one, yeah, that one's uh, one of, a great, great conservation success story that was huge in the 80s and still is still ongoing, right? I mean, they're still up there breeding, yeah. releasing, yeah. Yeah, we're still cranking out condor chicks every every year. And Yeah, and they're still in trouble. I mean, it's not like it's it's they're safe now. It's like we've got to keep keep on top of it because there's still Absolutely. environmental pressures. Yeah. Still a lot going on with them. So does LA zoo do a lot of international programs too with partners overseas? We do. I mean, uh, we, we certainly support a number of projects, um, all over the world. Uh, we're supporting a wonderful project with Indian Garial that's, that's, um, happening in the Chumbal river Valley of, of, of India and also expanding into Nepal now. 
Um, the, the Peninsular Pronghorn is a project that we're, we're very much involved with down in uh, Baja, Mexico in the Vizcaino Desert. Um, a number of um, other SSP programs that kind of, you know, they expand out into, into other countries. Um, we started, we actually initiated the uh, Catalina Island Rattless Rattlesnake SSP, which is the rattlesnake without a rattle that doesn't come from our Catalina Island, but the Catalina off the coast of, of Southern Baja. Okay. Um, so that's a, yeah, that's something that we're kind of in our, in my department, we're proud of. Uh, but yeah, we support a number of, of, of projects abroad. We're supporting a King Cobra project in India as well. Uh, we've supported giant salamander uh, conservation, uh, in China and Japan. So yeah, a whole bunch of great stuff happening. Yeah. Uh, just, I don't know why I, just the giant salamander that one's they're, they're critically endangered, right? I mean, they, they're being poached for your food. Isn't that true? Yeah, exactly. That's true. And there's, there's two species of giant salamander, uh, the Chinese and the Japanese, both are critically endangered and both are harvested uh, for food. And, but they're experiencing some of the similar pressures the yellow leg frog are too, you know, invasive species have been an issue, habitat destruction, uh, you know, pollutants in the water. Um, but they are considered a delicacy in many parts of the world. Right. Right. Okay. So here, here's the question. <laughs> <laughs> how do we how do we fix this Ian? like i you know we we promote conservation optimism and sure. you know activism and we we tell our listeners everybody can make a difference it doesn't matter who you are you don't have to be out in the right. field working with these animals or like what you're doing but you know you can make little changes each day in your own life to make an impact so from your perspective You've been doing this for, for a number of years. How mm-hmm. can, you know, I would just say an average listener to this program, what can they do to help amphibians or reptiles? Gosh, I know I, I, I don't have the silver bullet, man, but you know, there's a lot of really easy things people can do. It's like, you know, trying to create peace in the Middle East, right? We're, we're, right. It's, it's, these are very complicated issues. And, um, for the average person, you know, just be conscientious of, you know, being, being a consumer that we are. I mean, the, and I don't want to get too out in the weeds here, but you know, the elephant in the room is, is that the human population is, is expanding massively. You know, we're, we're, there's a lot of us out there and we need to be more conscientious about how much we use. I think some of the, um, you know, something as simple as, as recycling is, is huge. Everybody can recycle, you know, um, think about what you're, you know, waste, think about what you're wasting, think about what you're leaving behind when you're, when you're in natural habitats, you know, um, you know, just not jumping in rivers with your suntan oil all over the place and polluting my, my yellow leg frog habitat, you know, just, just be thoughtful about what, what your impact is on natural places um, and environments and then support great conservation programs. If you can um, simply coming to the zoo and supporting us is great. You know, we, so much money that we bring in goes in back into the conservation uh, programs that I mentioned. And um, yeah, I, I Everybody can help, you know, everybody, if everybody does a little bit, it'll certainly help. No. And I, I, again, the suntan lotion, that is a great one. I, we mentioned it one time, long time ago and that's that right? we keep harboring on. Yeah. It's, it's so true though. Right. Like it's, you don't even think about it, especially in California, you know, it, or wherever you are, you know, down in Florida, you, you need suntan lotion or you don't want to get, to get skin yeah. cancer, but there's some environmentally friendly ones that you can use. And right, we'll good point. definitely be pushing those. Yeah, we'll push those. So you've been working in, you know, for the LAZ for quite a while. I guess my question is, from your perspective, how important is the zoo today to animal conservation? 
Yeah, I mean, just in the, you know, I've been here for about 26 years and I was involved with the zoo even before I started as a paid employee. And, and I've just watched our field change so much for the better. Um, you know, zoos have always provided some sort of entertainment, right? I mean, that's the reality and people get an opportunity to see wild animals in front of their face. And I think there's a, there's a ton of value to that. Um, there are, are most people in their lifetime will never get to see a mamba, right? Unless they come to the zoo and they can see a mamba and they can learn about it. And we have millions of kids that come through our gates and, and can read and learn something and gain an appreciation. And I've seen just a change in how kids react to reptiles and amphibians, especially, you know, working in a reptile house. It's like, um, and I think a lot of that has to do with some of the shows on reptiles and amphibians that make them interesting, you know, and then there's been kind of a, a change in, in how people think about the creepy crawly stuff. But in general, zoos now have, have really transitioned into being more conservation and education, um, you know, heavy. And, and that's important because, um, it, you know, I looked at, uh, you know, when I first started working here, we had all these exhibits that were built in the sixties, for instance, and some of them were pretty archaic. Uh, you know, they were moat gunite moats and, and gunite hills. And now, you know, we've literally torn down the zoo piece by piece and rebuilt it. And we're continuing to do that. And we have these fantastic naturalistic type exhibits now that, that, send a much better message to the general public, but they also provide a lot more to the different species. You know, one of the things I like to do in, in our facility at the, the lair at the zoo here, it's a living amphibian, invertebrate and reptile facility is we create these little biomes, right? With multiple species interacting with each other. What a cool message that sends. I've got a simple exhibit with um, beaded lizards and Mexican West coast rattlesnakes living together. And all day long, hundreds of people come through and go, I can't believe a snake and a lizard can live together. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They've learned something. (laughs) Right. Right. Like I, yeah, it's, that's one of the things like the, the first day I went to the LA zoo earlier this year and it was packed. It was packed. It was a Saturday. It was almost elbow to elbow, which made me happy because, you know, Mm -hmm. I got to watch and listen and just take it in and see children excited about animals and the public excited about animals. And I go back to my own experience as a young kid walking around the, you know, the zoo being inspired. And so we always say, you never know who the next Jane Goodall is in that population. Somebody in there is going to make a huge difference for wildlife. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's, it's amazing what you do. It's amazing what accredited zoos are doing today. Yeah. If you're not, if you're not interested, you're not going to care. Right. No, not at all. Not at all. So I guess my, that leads to my next question. What if zoos went away? What do you think would happen to these endangered species? Well, I mean, some of the, some of them would go extinct. I mean, quite, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there would be people would, you know, there would be a, a, a million and a half people in the Los Angeles area that walk through our gates each year that, um, wouldn't have the kind of appreciation that they did after they visited our facility and saw some of these animals for themselves. I mean, Hey, look, I, I, like I said, I've been here for 26 years. Every time I walk by and I see a giraffe up close, it blows my mind. <laughs> you know, can you imagine a little kid that's never seen that before and never will probably in the wild, you know, I mean, it's, so there's just, it's just a lot of value there. I think zoos just present, you know, a ton of educational and, and, and they create interest. Like I like we were just saying, you know, if you're not interested, you're really not going to care. Right, right. And it's, 
you know, it's not just the, like you said, the conservation and education. It's, you know, how many of these species would go extinct? Przewalski horse, black-footed ferret, California condor, right. mountain-legged frog. I mean, all of these animals w- would be gone forever, right. you know, extinctions That's forever. Right. And you can't, you can't reverse it. You can't change that. So again, critical, critical stuff that you're doing. And, and, you know, we appreciate it. And I know our listeners do. So with that being said, do you, I mean, what, is this what drives you every day? Like what drives you every day to do what you do for the last 20 plus years? <laughs> I mean, I, I just have this, this kind of innate love for wildlife and natural things. And of course, like I said, my parents were a big part of that, you know, and, and exposing my brother and I to, to wild places and spending time in the desert. And, you know, I just, and, and my perspectives changed a little bit. You know, when I first started, I really, I just wanted to work with animals and, and do something positive and, and care for animals and then eventually build a collection that was significant and, and, and meant something. And then, you know, now, now we're doing all these great conservation things, but the more and more now I'm going, you know, we're really, we're really giving back to the world. Okay. So you have, you know, do we want to, for instance, do we want to live in a world where kids, grandkids go outside and they don't get to see a butterfly? You know, there's already places on the planet where, where people can't see birds flying around. You know, there's places in some parts of, of, of Asia where you, you can't see a bird flying around anymore. And that's our doing, you know, so the, the longer I get into this, the more, the more I really become passionate about the conservation aspect of what we do here at the Los Angeles zoo and other wonderful zoos around the country. So I guess that's what drives me more and more. Um, you know, I, I'm a few years away from retirement and I, it's going to be really hard <laughs> to walk away from, from this, this work completely. I'll tell you. Don't retire. Just keep doing what you're doing. We need you. We need you I might stick there. around forever. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait till they kick you out the door in the wheelchair. Then you go, okay, I'll go. <laughs> maybe yeah. I'll go retire. Yeah. So that kind of leads me to my next question because, you know, I asked this of all my guests and anybody that's listened to these interviews knows I always ask this question, you know, as a species, you know, we, we have morality. So do you think we have a moral obligation to fight and preserve these endangered species? Yeah, gosh, that's a, that's a tough one. You know, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call it a, a moral obligation, maybe, mm-hmm. Uh, we should think about at the lowest level, you know, self-preservation, right? I mean, it, mm-hmm. if, and I said this before, if we continue to, to destroy nature, we're going to ultimately destroy ourselves, you know, and, and, uh, I think, I think it was George Carlin once said, uh, you know, Mother Earth has a way of scratching fleas off its back. And, you know, we're, we're becoming that flea and we need to really start thinking about our future and, and the future of our children and, and our grandchildren. I mean, this is, so yeah, maybe it is a moral obligation, but how can you not just want to, I mean, how, I guess, why would you want to destroy, right? Why would you want to destroy some of the wonderful stuff that we have on this planet, the, the great, you know, forests and, and all the, the, the amazing diversity that's taken hundreds of thousands, if not millions of years to evolve. You know, I just, it's just hard for me to understand why somebody wouldn't want to want to keep that stuff preserved. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to get different perspectives on this and that question. And, and it's a tough one. Yeah. It's a tough one. That's why I ask Real it. Tough. It's, yeah, it's like, you know, you're right. I, I, I can't agree with you more. You know, if we destroy nature, we're going to destroy ourselves. And, 
it's not to be alarmist. It's just the truth. You know, the evidence points that way. And yeah, and it's, it's hard truth, but you know, it should motivate some certain segments of the population to, to take action. We hope so politicians, if you're listening, but yeah, um, you <laughs> no, it's, you know, taken together when you look at an environment, a biome, so you're looking mm-hmm. at the the smaller creatures and, you know, and then we look at the big creatures and then like the insects you talked about. So you, you got to look at it all and, and we have to preserve right. each piece because if one piece falls away, that's it. The whole thing will collapse. That's right. right. I mean, you know, you talk about it. Well, so I guess my final question, Ian, is how can our listeners help you? I guess your efforts with the mountain legged yellow frog or mm-hmm. the mission of the LA zoo, you know, um, Come out and, and see the zoo, okay? Come out and visit the zoo. Take a walk around our facility. Uh, most definitely come and see the layer facility, which I mentioned before. That's our reptile, invertebrate, and amphibian house. It's um, it's it's beautiful. It's one of the newer facilities of its kind in the country. It's it's really kind of um, cutting edge. We have a lot of wonderful things to see. And if you're if you're afraid of snakes, then you definitely need to come into the layer because you're going to have a whole <laughs> different perspective on on how, how really cool um, some of these animals are. Like I said, it's not, you know, you walk into the quote-unquote reptile house, you're going to see turtles and fish and monitor lizards living together. You're going to see all kinds of really interesting biomes. We have some species here that you won't see any at any other zoo, in fact. So, um, you know, this that's my, you know, my plug is, is come to the Los Angeles Zoo, check us mm-hmm. out. Um, learn something. And if you really want to become interested, you know, there's, there's lots of things around the zoo to help you get pointed in that direction. Um, but again, just, you know, just become people, just be conscientious of what you're doing in the environment and how it impacts the, the little uh, lesser known animals that are, are living in the dirt and the cracks and the rock crevices. That's so true. It's so true. And we always say, you know, I mean, if you, if you, when you come out to California, there's a lot to do, but LA zoo should be on your list as one of the places you stop by and see it's, it's a beautiful facility tons of animals. It, it, it's an incredible zoo. And if, if you can't get to California or wherever you are in the world, you know, we have a lot of listeners from around the world, go visit your local accredited facilities and support them because it's, it's one world. It conservation isn't just, you know, here in California, it's, it's there in Europe, it's there in Africa and Australia and everywhere. So yeah, Ian Riccio, thank you so much. He's a curator of reptiles and amphibians at the LA zoo you know, we're going to keep following you, following you and your story. Thanks so much. This was great. And, you know, I really appreciate it. This, this is the kind of thing, these, this type of podcast is something that's really so valuable now to, for, for us to get the word out, for people to be able to listen what, you know, what we're doing in, in zoos and, and, and conservation community as a whole. So thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the, uh, the time. Oh, it was great. It was great. Thank you so much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again one day. All right. Have a good one.